Hi, I'm Chris Wright and welcome to my podcast, Right on the Nail. Today, I'm literally joined by one of the most successful music producers in the world. Someone whose career ignited when he produced Sade's debut album, Diamond Life, which carried, I think, two huge hits with Smooth Operator and Your Love is King. That's right, Robin. They were both on the first album, which is amazing. And what a great record that was. Thank you, Chris. Uh, Robin and I go way back in the music business, and he happens to they have been in partnership with me a few years ago when we owned Chrysalis Records together. Right. Not the original Chrysalis Records, but the most recent truncated version of Chrysalis Records. Mm. We had a lot of t- lot of good times together, Robin and I, doing that. Yeah. Um, of course, it was that was founded in 1968. I didn't know Robin then, but we're going to be talking a lot about music. As well as having a world-beating success in music, Sir Robin Miller, yes, he was knighted for his services to music and people with disabilities and also to young people and to charity. He is also the chair of Scope UK, the national charity representing 14 million UK disabled people. So it's quite a career you've had, Robin. 14 million now, 16 million. It's going up like your bank account, Chris. Is that right? Yes, in the blink of an eye, it's gone up from 14 million to 16 million. I wish my bank account was going up. (laughs) My bank account is probably going down at the same rate. Interesting (laughs) what you said, Chris, you know, that we met, that, you know, that that the recognition was for charity going way back because I remember when I met you for the first time, it was when we were both patrons of UNICEF. And That's a long time ago, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. But that it's quite interesting, full, full circle, you know. And, um, you know, I've had a sort of sporadic on and off with charities. You know, I, I, I did that for a while. I did UNICEF for a while. And then, you know, a long gap, really, to scope. So it's interesting, you know, it's funny sitting here talking to you now, really, thinking that that was, that was the very first time. When, when UNICEF realised, I think, that having people who knew people in music and movies, I suppose, who could become ambassadors was going to be a very good thing for the organisation. Mm. I think it was when um, um, the David Putnam, I think, was that when he was chair? It could have been. He yeah. was on the board of Chrysalis, you know, David Putnam. I didn't know that. Yes, Chris. he was. It's, 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 there you are. I, I knew him no- very well. We had, a, we had a very interesting relationship, David and I. We didn't always see eye to eye. Mm. Uh, and he left the board after a disagreement with me. Um, but he was very sweet about it afterwards, yeah. and we kind of cuddled up to each other yeah. after that. Yeah, he is a sweet man. Uh, he grew up half a mile from where I grew up in North London, and in fact he tried to date my sister, I found out later. Is that right? Yes, unsuccessfully. Well, that is a small world. But, but- you know what happened? Um, in 2008... Um, I was nominated by a few music business people to put my name forward to be their representative in the House of Lords. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I got shortlisted, if that's the right word, and I had an interview of a quaint little staircase with Sir Dennis Stevenson. No, sorry, Lord Dennis Stevenson, yeah. who was the chair of the nominations committee. So it was to go yeah. in as a crossbencher. Yeah. Lovely little chat in a quaint old Westminster government building and he said well that's all right robin um it, it, you know this is how it works obviously um a bit like the uh, lta chris you know you have to wait for someone to die yeah to get in but he said it's all right you're in the you're in the in tray and so you don't know when the call will come but you know everything's fine with me so we shook hands and i left and three months later i was in the house of lords with you might remember uh, a guy called Lord Newby, Dick Newby, because I think he was also something to do with UNICEF or Lib Dem. I'm sitting there and David Putnam scampers over and said, oh, Robin, um, a word to the wise. I've heard that you're, you, you're being nominated to go into the House of Lords and I just wanted to tell you, you're going to be blocked by Black Rod. So I thought, what on earth have I done? I mean, nowadays, of course... You worry about everything, Chris. You worry, I think you worry a lot in this day and age that someone 35 years ago that you slighted, you know, is going to come back and accuse you of goodness knows what, yeah. you know, misdeeds. Yeah. But back then, 
And I said, what on earth happened? And he said, well, um, a friend of mine happened to be at the meeting and Black Rod just said, oh, God, no, we've already got one blind peer. We have enough trouble resourcing him. We can't put up with another one. Is that right? Yeah, and I got a letter. And apparently this is very unusual. Normally, if they don't pick you, they just don't pick you. I actually got a letter formally telling me I was not going to be considered. And uh, I tried to kick up a stink. Imagine how far I got with that. They just closed ranks and said, nonsense, absolute nonsense. Is that, that's really, really what happened? Yeah, that's really what happened. Really, that's amazing. I mean, there's loads of reasons uh, why I might not be put there. And actually, interesting, as you say, I think I'm such a nice person that everyone likes me. But as you go through life, you do actually find that inadvertently you've left a little bit of trail of destruction here and there with people that you've upset for no particular reason. But who took it at the time that you've done something that they didn't like? And I can't understand it. So, Well, you and I have both come across people that probably did do things that were quite reprehensible in a lot of ways, but neither you nor I did. But it doesn't necessarily take something real to happen. It could just be someone whose nose was put out of joint. Maybe you sacked them for stealing or for, you know, doing know. a terrible job. And then they I suddenly know. then they suddenly turn around and say, oh, Robin Miller or Chris Wright did this, that and the other when I was 18 or 19. And then, of course, it's, you know, the cat's out the bag. I know. You don't, and you don't understand and realise you're doing it at the time. It could be, you know, in days gone by when someone was in a more junior position with you know, working on a deal that in the end didn't close yeah. and you kind of made up with the guy that, sorry, it didn't work out. But meanwhile, one mm. of the other people as part of that was And I think social media has pushed people towards the edge of, of what they're prepared to do as people. I get, you'd be surprised, Chris, I get hate mail uh, uh, in connection with being chair of Scope. Really? Oh, yeah. God. Mm. Well, I certainly got lots of hate mail and and death threats by email and God knows what when I was with QPR. That was uh, a different experience well, altogether. Mm. But let's let's go back to you to where you were born and where you came from, Robin, because it's mm. quite interesting. You you were born on December the eighteenth, nineteen fifty one, which makes you about mm, five years younger than me. I think okay. something like that. Yeah. To an Irish father and a West Indian mother. That's right. And I never knew that, but mm. um, the Irish father, you know, very understandable. The West Indian mother, where did the West Indian mother come from? And what do you know about your West Indian roots? My, my mother's mother was local uh, Guyanese. So she was uh, from the, the, the local community from a small village... Uh, inland in Guyana, and their ancestors were local. They're called Amerindian, but that had mixed a lot with Portuguese. Mm. Um, so they were uh, they were already sort of. Um, I think they were called mulatto. I, I you know I, I think they actually were called mulatto, which, and, which is part 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 uh, white Portuguese and part black Guyanese. That's then. right. Mm. That's right. And she was working in. in my grandmother was working in quite a menial job. And my grandfather, who was English, was out there as an engineer with Tate and Lyle. Um, and they got married and had my mum and her brother. And then he absconded, leaving the two of them. And my grandmother, who, of course, had a very broad Guyanese accent, said... Uh, she either had to become a seamstress or earn money on her back, as she put it. That was the only two things that she could do. Really? And they worked. she worked as a seamstress. They had to escape from Guyana to Trinidad to escape the bailiffs, the mm. debt collectors. And they lived in Trinidad. And then, of course, through my grandfather, there were a couple of maiden aunts in, in the UK. We're talking 1930. Eight. Yeah. My mum came over on her own at the age of 17 mm. and did the only job that uh, you could do where you got accommodation, which was to train as a nurse. Yeah. And she trained as a nurse at St. George's. 
And so she arrived. My aunt says that my mother turned up at 17 with a very broad West Indian accent. And in those days, Chris, um, the, the daughters of um, very sort of elegant middle and upper middle class people who wanted to do something, who went into nursing, but they went into nursing at a nice posh hospital. My mum went to uh, live in digs in Belgravia with all these posh girls. And my aunt said that my mother's voice completely changed from broad West Indian in about six weeks to cut glass received pronunciation. Yeah. And that's the voice she had to yeah. the end of her. Anyway, she trained as a nurse. She went out to India during the war. And my dad was a doctor. He was a doctor with the medical Royal Army Medical Corps. And they met on an ambulance train on the way back from the front. Really? Yeah. Do you, do you know, was your mother um, Portuguese? Was she Portuguese Sephardic Jewish? Do you know that? There Did was no no Sephardic Jewish, as far as I know. Really? Because you know one of one of our contemporaries, Chris Blackwell, mm. his, his mother, uh, Blanche, is Jamaican, mm. but she's white, white Jamaican, but mm. from Sephardic, from Portuguese background, Sephardic Jewish, because an awful lot of Sephardic Jewish in Portugal did go out to the West Indies. But of course, Blackwell's mother was, you know, owned, you know, mm. hundreds of acres of plantations in Jamaica, a bit different from yours. But his father was Irish too. So wow. in a funny, in a funny yeah, sort of yeah, way, yeah, yeah. you're kind of like blood brothers with that, Chris yeah, Blackwell, which that, probably you didn't know no, until I brought that no, up. No, I, no, no. I had no idea. No. All I do know is that Growing up in North London, um, it, my life seemed normal to me until I, until I went to school and started going around to other people's houses where they ate rather tired roast beef and carrots and boiled potatoes and ate lion's cupcakes. And my mother, of course, made pepper pot yeah. and uh, uh, salad with onions and plantains and stuff. And we'd, yeah. she'd go to the market yeah. in Edmonton. And she also wore very sort of wafty, flowing robes. And she had that mm. West Indian style, Chris. So our house was a riot of colour, you know, yeah. wallpaper with tomatoes and pelicans. Well, I, well, and I can tell you something pens. else about Guy- Guyanese as well, because, as you know, I spent quite a bit of time in Antigua. Mm. In, An- in Antigua, we have quite a few Guyanese. Mm-hmm. And the Guyanese are very, very prized in Antigua for their, their work ethic mm. and very, very reliable, very industrious people, mm. and um, you know it's it's a it's quite a trait. So I think maybe that's what that country produces. It's not probably not a kind of country where it gets a lot of of mm. income for nothing. You have, it's not well, really it, like a tourist destination, and you probably have to make every buck that you need to make. So they are a very industrious nation. It's interesting, you know. Yeah. I've felt like going to visit a, a few times over the years, and each time I've been put off by people who've experienced and lived and worked there. And the the last person who put me off was Graham Gooch, the cricketer, mm. who recounted to me what, what I think is quite a famous story where he was playing in Georgetown at the cricket ground. He scored the winning run, and he ran off the field, still with his pads on, and just ran straight out of the ground. And he came back to London and people said to him, that was a strange thing to do. And he said, well, it was either it was either doing that or missing the plane and spending another bloody night in that force. I know, I do. I, I do hear that is that kind of country yeah. as well. That, yeah. Anyway, so there you were growing up. And, and, and can we talk a little bit about, you know, you grew up with perfect eyesight. No, 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 not quite. Um. If you imagine that your whatever your field of vision is, my field of vision right from the time that I was well that I can remember was starting to get restricted by pigment, black pigment. Every time you see an image, your eyes, your retinas washed with pigment, and then it washes away and it leaves an image, and then it replaces and repeats itself. Every time that happens with my eyesight. It leaves a little bit of silt, almost like a little thing of oil right on the edge of a beach, gradually moving its way. So I always had a tunnel of vision. And of course, you use your peripheral vision to see at night. 
So I could never see at night. I've never seen a star. You know, I just looked up and it was black, even though I was actually very interested in the planets and cosmology mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. But I could never see a star. And then I was, it goes with the territory that you also get a, a little bit of um, deterioration in the middle. So mm. if you imagine I've got a sort of gradually encroaching from the edge and then a little blurry bit right in the centre. I could work around it, though. Mm. So I could work around it. I could, I could see to read until I was 21, 22, 23, really? probably. Really? I could see the black book. But I remember having to keep going, moving places further up the classroom to see mm. the blackboard and ball games. I loved ball games. And I, I think I was naturally good at ball games, but anything coming from the periphery, I missed. Mm. So a lob or, mm. a, or, 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 you know, a tennis ball, a mm. cricket ball coming out from me high. Um, so that was all quite mm. tricky. But un- unlike, uh, unlike someone who's, who, I mean, I'm sure many people are born without any sight at all. Mm. You did experience a lot of things. So I know you're a big football fan, you're a big Spurs fan, and you like to go to football and to other sporting events. So when you're witnessing it, you have a very good idea of what's going on because you did actually see it, whereas somebody that grew up blind from birth wouldn't have ever seen it. I think that's very perceptive, Chris, and it's almost like two different disabilities. First of all, I'm only guessing... Although, if you've never seen, I don't think you don't experience the pain of the loss, of course. You know, the gradual diminution of your sight, which is a painful experience. And the other thing I realise is that they are incredibly good at things. Like anything that people learn when they're very, very young. So people who were born blind will always be better than me at... Oh, getting around, doing stuff. You know, they play chess, mm, they play mm. bridge, they play cricket, they play football. They do all these amazing things, which I can't imagine doing. But I, my situation, exactly as you've said, Chris, is that you're always looking for a connection when you meet someone for the first time mm, or the second mm. time. And I think that the reason that the first question a lot of people ask me is, have you always been blind? And I'll give the answer that I think helps the situation. I'll go, no, I haven't all been blind. I had good, acute vision, even though it was within a limited range. And I have not lost my visual, my, I have not lost my visual memory. So if you say, do you remember the old Mini Cooper? I can picture it immediately. Yeah. You know, look at this amazing thing of ash trees over there, Robin. Uh, or there's a beautiful sunset. You know, I know what you're talking. Yes, yes, a lovely lady on a beach or something. Yes, you know, I know what you're talking about. So, in terms of common ground, um, yeah, it's very, very different and better mm. for me from my point of view. It's better. Is it true when when uh, you were first go- going through conversations with with uh, the doctors or whatever about? how you would adjust to life and they said well we'll have to introduce you as to how you cope with public transport and you said don't worry about that i'll get a chauffeur apparently yeah yeah apparently i said that when i was about 13 yeah well, yeah well, and i did well done you because <laughs> he you brought did. me here today <laughs> you did it did yeah, so so let's get into how you got the chauffeur because um mm. the, the the chauffeur came from no doubt from a result of all of your marvelous uh talents and efforts in the recording studio. At what point in time did you feel you wanted a career in music? I went, I, I loved music when I was a kid. I played the guitar when I was a kid. I was very into it. My dad was very determined that I should have a career, he would call it to fall back on, I think. And he wrongly, I think, Chris, chose the law, because the law, of course, involves a lot of reading. Mm. So it really wasn't a brilliant choice. Mm. But uh, I went to college and I did a law degree. He said, if you get your degree, neither of my sisters had been to college. and I, So I think I was the last one to sort of uphold the family, you know, name to yeah. get to university. Um, and when I finished college, I wrote to 35, 36 record companies I got one interview at Polydor, so I took the job. 
um, as a sort of management trainee. Who, who, who gave you the job at Hollywood? John Fruin. John Fruin? Mm-hmm. Wow. John Fruin gave me the job when they were where Well, you, well done, John Fruin, for the doing of, that. The, the offices that you then moved into with Chrysalis later. Um, you mean in Stratford Place? Stratford Place. Yeah, we were, we were down in the left-hand corner, and they were on the other side of the road, just right. in the middle of, of Stratford Place. Right, so, so what you may not have known is there was the main... Stratford Place Polydor office with the swanky glass doors with the sort of chrome, you know, yeah. chrome rails and things. And that was where marketing and A&R and all the rest of it hung out. Two doors along was a rather scruffy little building at the end, tucked in, which had lino on the floor and filing cabinets. And that, where, that was where royalties and copyright yeah. uh, and uh, business affairs hung out. And so I was in there. But, you know, I've, I'm really pleased I did, Chris, because the first thing I learned was how everyone got paid. You know, I didn't know. So I was making, I was picking up these computer printouts of, of six monthly royalty statements, huge thing, going through, adding up what each person had earned from each record, having the little contract summary next to me. You could still see it at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But not terribly well. I, I, you know, mm-hmm. I was struggling even then. Yeah. But the fact that, so you'd have to make three photocopies. And I'd say, what's the other one for? Oh, that's to go to copyright. And I'd go, what's that? Oh, well, that's, that's the publishing side because some of the money goes to the publishers. Yeah. And so learning really how... Records are priced, um, everything from what's deducted from a gatefold sleeve, what's deducted from the rest of the world, or and then what special terms success, you know, artists had fought for in their own deals, because there was the standard deal. And I remember something, I won't spill the name, but um, I remember saying to the, the manager of the department, I said, look, there's, a, there's this standard, it's a standard royalty rate, 4%, 5%, whatever it was. And then there are these special terms, like if you're like the Roubettes, I think we're on more like nine or 10% or something. And I said, but I can't find all the contract summaries. And he said, oh, don't worry about it. Just, just put in the default 6%. They'll either not bother to check, in which case we'll keep the money or, or occasionally they'll get an auditor to come and check, and then we'll hold our hands up and pay them the rest yeah. of the money. <laughs> they really, even a even a major multinational company did that. But actually, it's it it's it's an awkward story, really, Chris. Because mm. what happened was that I couldn't cope with all the fine print and the fine detail, and I was starting to make mistakes. And of course, I was getting you know in trouble for making mistakes. And I should have just gone. Listen, I, I need to explain to you that I'm having trouble, mm. and I need resourcing. I don't know what would have happened if mm. I tried that in the early 70s. But I didn't. And you know what I did? I, I lied. I did, I, I, I'd got into a habit as a child, you know, of, of kind of fibbing my way out of situations like that. So I lied and I said that an aunt had left me some money. I took the remainder of the money that I'd had from my last paycheck and I bought everyone in the department Parker pens to sort of show off, you know, that I'd got this newfound wealth. Yeah. And I said, I'm going to go off and make my fortune. The truth was, I just, I was ashamed of my disability. Yeah. I was ashamed of everything. I was, I, was just, I, I slunk away, really. But clearly, somehow I wanted to hold my head up. So I, I lied, you know, to hold and my head up. What did your mum and dad say about that? Uh, I don't remember because I... What I then did, Chris, was I then thought, well, I'd better come clean. And so I thought, by this time, um, because my sister was married to a musician, going out with, you know, married to a musician, I'd gone to Olympic Studios. I'd gone to your air studios in Oxford Street. And I'd fallen in love with studios. I mean, absolutely Mm. fallen in love. I think it's partly because of that cocoon, like you shut that door and the world mm, goes mm, away. Mm. Uh, you're, you're, you're just locked in. Mm. I, I just So I wrote to, remember there are a lot of studios in, in those days. Yeah. Great, great names, Air, you know, Abbey Road, Trident, Olympic, Olympic uh, yeah. R.G. Jones, mm, Ad Vision. Mm, I mm. wrote to them all 
and I said I'd like to start as a trainee in the studio. Um, my 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 vision is is becoming a bit poor, but I'm very anyway. I, I got absolutely nowhere. I got nowhere. really. So I um I thought I'll try my luck in. I don't know. I, you know, I don't know why. Oh yes, I do. I went to Paris because I knew one person who knew someone connected with music in Paris, and so I got the boat, got the ferry. I packed a bag, packed my guitar, and I went to try my luck in France. Mm. Um, and well, the rest, as you said, you know, really is is history because a complete chance encounter. I was playing guitar on the metro. American sax player walked past. Stopped for a minute, and he said, "Oh, you you played quite well. Um, there's a session out at this studio just outside Paris this evening. Guitarist isn't just called in sick. Mm. Classic story. It's so often that happens. Yeah. I mean, you must have met you know so many engineers and producers who said, well, we were there. We were supposed to be the assistant making the tea. And yeah. then there's yeah. 25 musicians waiting to play, mm. and the engineer phoned in sick, mm. and the studio manager says." You're doing it, Brian. Mm. You're doing it, John. Mm. And you get thrown in and somehow you get a sound out of the mixer and mm. Mm. you make friends with the artists and you're on your way. So I went and did this gig and the being France, of course, you all had dinner together afterwards. It was a residential studio. And the owner said, you're very interested in what I noticed you're very interested in what's going on in the studio. I said, yeah, I was, tr- I was trying to get a job in the UK. He said, well, you could get a job here. And I said, well, I haven't got anywhere to live. He said, well, it's a residential studio. You'd live in a little room, you know, in the studio. And I took a deep breath and I said, the thing is, I don't see very well. I am a bit worried about um, knocking mic stands over or yeah. whether I can see. And with that one sentence, which I would now almost pass over the desk to every chief executive of every country in the world now, he just said, oh, that's all right. We can work around that. And that was all the all the fear, all yeah. the embarrassment, all the yeah. shame, all the yeah. worry just melted away. Yeah. He just said, you can just be you. Just, you Just be you. You'll be fine. Well, what a great story. And how long were you at that studio in two Paris half, then? Two and a half years as a assistant engineer and an engineer, and then another two or three years as a, sometimes as a, playing member of a band, sometimes as a producer. So really like five years you yeah, were there. Yeah, That's, yeah. Wow, I On didn't and know off. that. And did you produce many hit records there or anything particularly memorable? <laughs> it's, funny. it's funny you should say that. So yes, but what happened was that was around the time, when are we talking, Chris? When, when did New Wave, Nouvelle Vague... New Wave it, it, would it be... It hit France almost before it hit the UK, yeah, almost before yeah. the Sex Pistols. yeah. Late late seventies, um, yeah, and th- they were very they, they were very into magazine and Devo, yeah, and, um, yeah, uh, um, uh, Lou Reed, yeah, Lou Reed, Lou Reed, we love Lou Reed, yeah, and uh, um, uh, so these punk bands started up Telephone Trust, these other bands, and the guy who'd offered me the job said, "Look, we've got this spare studio time." It's not often used at the weekends. And actually in France, it's not, people tend to stop after supper. They have quite a long supper, you know, and then they, they leave. We can use this dead time, as it was called, uh, to record these young bands. And because we record them, the lawyers say that we own the recordings. Mm-hmm. So and you're, I was by far the youngest of the engineers and assistants, and I knew enough about how to use the equipment. You, you don't mind working graveyard shift, Robin. You can record them. So I started recording them. And um, someone connected with, with this guy, Pierre, said, why don't I try and sell them in the flea market? Just just you know, just white labels. Mm-hmm. And they became underground successes. And, bec- and a couple of them then got signed. One of them got signed to CBS. And then CBS said... Um, well, let's make a record and we can make it with the same team. Mm-hmm. <laughs> By the way, Chris, what I'd done is, you remember the old, the big tape boxes? On the back, they had the label. It had the big studio logo on the top, the title yeah. of artist, title of track, blah, blah, blah. And the bottom left-hand corner, it said producer. 
Yeah. Well, there was no one else in the room, so I just to write my name. Yeah. Producer, I just wrote Robin Miller. And so a couple of them got deals. Um, I got married and thought, I can't be married with my wife, who was American, but was working for, uh, well, she was working for Robert Stigwood, and then she went to work for uh, Warner's, uh, WEA Atlantic in New Oxford Street. And uh, so, so I, did, she, she was she was in England. So did she go over to Paris with you then? Or no, no, exactly. You, you no, just I just had a, a cross-channel relationship. I was going back with some forwards, and it, yeah. it, it it just wasn't it wasn't working. Mm. So I came back to the UK, and, and um, I tried to raise money. I found an accountant. I tried to raise money, and that's when I read. That's the first time I realised that nobody wanted to invest in a business with a blind man. Mm. One of them actually rang. My, so my accountant was someone that uh, I'm sure you've come across, Chris, Patrick McKenna. Yeah, I know Patrick and, very and, well. And this was before he even went to Touche Ross, which became Deloitte. Yeah. Deloitte. yeah. He's working for a smallish firm. Mm-hmm. And in fact, he, does, he doesn't credit me directly. I mean, he credits me simply because he stuck with me. Mm-hmm. 36th person, I think, actually suddenly said, we'll put some money into you. So I bought a share in the old mortgage. I, I remortgaged my little flat in Paddington because I'd been putting, sending money home, mm. a little flat in Paddington, and um, bought the old Morgan Studios. And Really? They were know, a hot studio for a while. Well, Morgan. do you know, the main reason was it was very down at heel by then. Yeah. And it was three ageing um, jazzers, Monty Babson, uh, Leon Calvert, and a Jerry Allen mm-hmm. uh, organist. And they wanted out. And uh, they owed the bank money, and God, even then, you know, I was when it came to business, I was quite a hard, a hard nut. I found out that they owed money to Barclays, and I went to see their bank manager at Barclays mm, mm. and said, "I'm offering sixty thousand pounds, right? I'm offering them sixty thousand pounds, which is what they owe you, to get out mm. now." And he came with me to the meeting in Wilston. Mm. And, and sat there in his flannels and his blazer. Um, and anyway, we got the deal over the line. And the main reason I loved it was, uh, uh, for me, the music is in the walls. It is mm. in the walls. Mm. And that Studio 2 downstairs was where McCartney had made his first solo album. It was where Lou Reed had made Berlin. And that album fascinated me because of its sense of place, its sense of that it lived beyond the music itself. It inhabited this world of drug addiction and depression and aura and fantastic players um, on that record. I, do you know, I don't even know who they were, but uh, I think the drummer was Ainsley Dunbar. Mm-hmm. Um, fabulous band. Great I mean, drummer. A fabulous band. And of course, those were the days when, you know, accomplished session players i think herbie flowers was on bass you get fantastic mm. five or six yeah. piece bands could have been, Ger- could have been they, jimmy page on guitar if probably, it had been a they few routine years a couple of times and, and out comes this magic and i felt that this magic was in the walls so i i took it on and i just mimicked what pierre had done um we we inherited of course you had to start with the clients that are already there before you can start with we changed its appearance we made it look much more trendy and cool and 80s looking but we still thin lizzie and various had been using the studio for years and i thought well what am i gonna i'm gonna do this dead time thing i'm gonna i'm I'm going to uh Mm. use free time to make records yeah and uh andrew thompson a young lawyer had just left harbottle and lewis just setting up on his own yeah my wife before we got married, shared a flat with Barbara Sharon, who is now a very yeah. famous PR yeah. person. She was a music journalist. And the, and the and, Chelsea Football Club director. Yes, and um, uh, Moira Bellis. Yes. Moira Banks, yeah. who ended up as head of Warners. They all shared a flat in Maida Vale with uh, Miles and Ian Copeland on yeah. the ground floor. Yeah. Used to push, their, push start their little Renault every day. And so Barbara knew Andrew. Andrew said, you, if, if, you, if you record these things, you just need to get 
the artist to sign this, and he faxed the slimy little fax of a one-page agreement for the artist to sign, yeah. just acknowledging that I'd paid for the tapes. And I did a charity concert for Chilean. I wasn't a charity person, but I was approached by a musician to say that Chilean Solidarity wanted to make a record for the 10 years that Pinochet had been running that company, that country into the ground mm. and people had been disappearing. So, and because it was Latin jazz, I put a call out and I said, anyone who wants to come and play on a charity record, explaining what it was, come to the studio on a Sunday evening. About 25 people turned up mm. and we pulled something together. Tracy Thorne, who I then, that, that's where I met Tracy, who was with Everything But The Girl, who I went on to produce their record. Uh, Robert Wyatt from Soft Machine and a few other people. And we made the record. And the following day, a manager rang up and said, I manage this band called Sade. And two of them were playing the, the other night and they got on quite well with you. They thought you were quite good. Can I come and play you some music? And he played me the demos of Smooth Operator and Your Love is King. And I said, right, okay, I'll do a week. You sign here. I'll own the tracks. We tried to get a deal, got nowhere. You know why we got nowhere, Chris? This is 1983. The, a little bit like Chrysalis, I think. You know, you either go where things are going or you've got an idea that you're, you, you want to go where the interesting people are yeah, yeah. doing it more interesting yeah, things. Yeah. So every, Blamange, Duran Duran, talk, t- Tears for Fit. All electronic drums, uh, synthesizers, and of course, Sade. It was jazzy, real musicians. So you say it was a group. So Sade was a group originally. It was called Pride. But but she it, was a backing singer. Who she, was the backing singer? Sade. So the, the name of the group was Sade. The and, name of the group was Pride. Oh, Sade the name was of the backing group. singer. Oh, right. And she had one spot in their set where she sang. Be thankful for what you've got. It's yeah. old classic. And it became clear, so I'm told, that when she did her song, the atmosphere in the place completely changed. And plus, of course, she looked extraordinary. And so the very gracious singer apparently said, I think you should take over as lead singer and I'll become... Was a it a male or female singer? Female, female singer. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Um, so Sade in a very Sade-like way, said, um, you know, it would be simpler. The, th- the problem with bands, multiple identities, why don't we change the name of the band to Sade? <laughs> mm. and, and the band, she's a difficult person to argue with, you know, so the band, oh, all right then, so we'll change the name to Sade. So we recorded the same versions of Smooth Operator and Your Love is King that are on that record, Diamond Life, today. We never, we never even mixed them again. They went round to all the record companies and um, we, they all turned them down. But Sade was dating a guy called Robert Elms, mm-hmm. journalist. Mm-hmm. At the time, a very kind of in-the-know mm-hmm. journalist. And he was working for ID and The Face. And he got her onto the cover of The Face, saying, The Face of 1984. And he put together a, a gig at Heaven under the arches used to be called Global Village, mm-hmm. under the arches at Charing Cross. He got all his music, his journalist friends to come, and all these paparazzi took pictures of 600 people queuing up trying to get into this trendy con- little show concert with Charde. Mm-hmm. All the record companies who had been completely indifferent started calling me. Mm-hmm. And I remember an amazing call from the head of A&R EMI, Chris, who said, Robin, um, yes, Sade, uh, I've been following your career. I love your work. And I actually did say to him, so you're very familiar with the French underground music of the late 70s mm. then, because I've never had a successful record yeah, in England yeah, ever. Yeah. So it's just bull, you know, bullshit. Um, but suddenly they all, everyone wanted to sign them. And Rob Dickens, who went on to become, uh, you know, head of, Warner's for a long time. Years later, he said to me, oh, the one thing you have to remember about music businesses, Robin, is that we'll say no and 
that means no. But if in six months' time something changes, so the act gets on TV or mm, you know mm. something, we'll be on the mm, phone straight away. Mm. And regarding what happened six months before, he said, you don't mention it and we don't mention it. Yeah. That's how it goes. Yeah. So That's- the one you don't mention, Chrysalis, that I, and I, I don't recollect Chrysalis ever being aware of Sade until Sade happened and and blew open like that. So I, I don't remember it coming across my desk at all. Do you remember if, if we were involved in, in at that point or not? Who was the chap who was there for a long time with you? Doug Darcy. Doug Darcy was there. And then there was another fellow who was... Roy Eldridge. Roy Eldridge, mm-hmm. right. So they were very Royston Eldridge. That's right. Yeah. So they were considered very cool. You know, now managing uh, Liam Gallagher. Really? Yeah. Well, they were considered very cool, but they never offered me work as a record producer. But I did know them quite a lot. I did go go round to Chrysalis quite a lot. But no, I don't think Chrysalis were involved in the bidding for. No. Actually, maybe they were. I mean, no, because remember, I wasn't involved in no, the bidding. I don't think we were because no. I I would have remembered it, and um, I'm sure we weren't offered it. I'm sure I never saw the name. And I'm sure had we heard it, mm. we would have definitely wanted it. Yeah, it would but have been. But really, yeah. really, we were, we were pretty clued in with what was going on. Well, you had the specials. Well, we did. And um, uh, we did, just at that time. And of course, that, that whole, it, in fact, the specials really were at the centre of the orbit, which Sade and everything with the girl and all the others attached themselves to. It was the beginning mm. of Red Wedge, mm. uh, where, where a political consciousness coming in and it's interesting you know the the two-tone which 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 you know you fathered that label with yeah yeah and it's interesting when i think back that almost all those first records fine young cannibals black singer white yeah band um big country black bass player white band sade black singer white band everything with the girl black bass player Two white mm, singers, mm. working week, black singer and bass player, white band. Mm. Almost everything that I gravitated towards was in that two-tone model, if you like. But we thought we had all of that sewn up. I, I think politically you did, because the bands I'm talking about weren't political. But I think what they were reflecting, you know, what what your bands were political, but they were reflecting the two-tone attitude was why can't white and black musicians... Yeah, yeah. because up until that time, white and black didn't really mix. No, exactly. And uh, the the two markets were completely different. But you had Bob Marley at that time who was playing to a... He was playing to a mixed audience because he was playing to white English kids and black, basically Caribbean audience as well. So... Yeah. That's one part of the start of that. Well, but, there's no doubt about it that having a West Indian mother and growing up listening to a lot of um, uh, Scar and mm. um, Blue Beat um, and obviously the food, the culture, that I did feel very comfortable and at home with, um, with funny enough, not only a lot of the black musicians, but their mums. Yeah, mothers yeah. sort of come round with uh, little cakes yeah. and, and, and things. I had I had a great sort of affinity. I, I really liked the fact that in northwest London, because North London was, if you remember, Chris, around Wilsdon, it was a lot of Irish people. It was. It was the Irish and, and Irish and, enclave. And, a lo- and, and quite a lot of mm. Sadie Smith was from mm. around there. Mm. So quite a lot of mixed race. So I did feel very comfortable. So when did you think with Sade you had it? You had a massive hit on your hands. I thought, this is a funny thing, Chris. Um, When you finish a record, you must have experienced this. You finished a record, you love the record. Everyone who's involved loves the record. And then the record company person comes in and there's 29 people nodding their heads, smiling, Mm, you know, mm, mm, and there's the record company person like with their head cocked to one side mm. and then they're kind of saying well it's a bit jazzy you know it's not really mm. well couldn't you couldn't you put some electronic drums in it mm. well, well i'm mm. not sure so 
I, I sort of felt let down in a way because I felt that right out of the box, these things were special, really, really special. Mm, My dad yeah. said to me that I called him at some time during that first week's recording and said, I think I've cracked it. I think, I think I've really hit on something mm, mm. amazing here because everybody loved the records and they fell together as I think great records often do. Mm. You know, they just, they, they'd not been in a proper studio before any of them. Mm. I'd been, I'd done a music arranging, quite a long music arranging course. So they pretty much trusted me to do like string arrangements and brass parts and, you know, backing vocal parts. And it just, it just fell together because it had a bit of the sophistication in a, in, in inverted, big inverted commas, of American soul mm, music, mm. but with a sort of naivety of a sort of young British band. Mm, mm. Um, but it's interesting that the, the, the record companies didn't get it until nine months later when she got on the front cover. Because by that, and of course, luckily for me, Chris, because no one took those first two tracks, I decided I was going to plough on. So carried on using at first spare studio time and then actually, you know, taking a deep breath, talking to my co-studio investors, saying, I think we should give over, you know, two or three weeks so we can set up our instruments properly because we were, you know, you're coming again, you're ducking and diving between sessions. And so we did uh, seven of the nine tracks on Diamond Life before she finally got her deal with CBS, which mm, became Sony. Mm, and mm. then Muff Winwood rang me up from CBS and he offered me £12,000 just to buy the masters off me, which was a lot of dough for me mm. at the time. Mm. That was a lot of money. And um, I rang Andrew Thompson and he told me something I didn't know, the lawyer. He said, well, you could license the tracks to them. Do a mm. separate deal for yourself as a producer. Mm. But license the tracks. Um, so I went, oh, I did. I years later, you know, I read about Bill Gates, who'd done a on a much bigger scale because Microsoft offered him 250,000 pounds, didn't he, for, for the Microsoft program that IBM did. And he said, I'll tell you what, why just pay me a pound every time you sell an IBM computer? Mm-hmm. And of course, they went, yeah, fine. No, of course, they didn't realize that. 100 million computers later he was mm. he he he'd made the right decision so i so i licensed those tracks to sony until 1997 and then you sold them in 1997 yeah and of course it was massive in america as well wasn't yeah. it yeah yeah and the second album would be massive as well yeah what was on the second album the sweetest taboo was the big single and i remember sade who normally t- took and still takes very little interest. There's an uh, American magazine called Vibe, which was the Bible for all people who loved soul and R&B in mm. America. And they had Vi- Vibe magazine's top 10 records of all time. And I'm not going to remember the top 10. But she sent me a note. She sent me a copy of this magazine. And she said, I don't normally pay anything attention to this stuff robin but i have got goose pimples because it said number one i think was um uh let's get it on Mm. um and then number two was the sweetest taboo by sade really and then below that was marvin gay sly stone Mm. um you know all these people so did sade happen in america on the second album and then they came back to the first album no they there, there was one black, uh, there was one black executive, only one, Chris, in CBS in New York, and so obviously he became her sort of mainstay there. Um, he, so Chris said to Sade, the, the thing about America, if you're a black artist, if you go straight to pop, the black audience will never be interested in. Yeah. If you get your black audience there first and then you cross over, you're fine. So he said, don't put out Smooth Operator. Put out Hang On To Your Love, which was the most R&B of the tracks. Put it out and service it to black radio. 
And so it became an R&B hit. And it, 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 it was never even then crossed over. And so the first award that she won was the, a Gavin Award, which is a, a R&B yeah. soul music award, mm -hmm. presented to her by Stevie Wonder. And then uh, they took that. Then they put out Smooth Operator. The single did, I think it was top 30. Um, then Your Love is King. We were, we were making the second album by this time. The second single, Your Love is King, was 57 with a bullet. And uh, Sade wrote a note to Walter Yetnikoff saying, uh, I've heard that you, you're, you're firing Chris. If you fire Chris, I will not promote the record. Mm. So we're in this studio, and this couple of days later, this big green van trundles up the drive, and these two guys haul out the biggest bouquet of flowers mm. you've ever seen, two metres tall. Mm. And it had a note from Walter to Sade mm. and a copy of Billboard. Mm. And... You remember in the middle of Billboard, the charts, you know, was mm -hmm. the centre yeah. spread of the yeah. charts. And so Your Love is King had been 57 with a bullet and it was gone, just disappeared, gone. And it was Sade, don't ever do that again, love Walter. He'd pulled it. He pulled the really? record. Yeah, he pulled the record. I've got Michael Jackson. I've got Mariah Carey. I don't care. Really? No one no one tells me what to do. No one. Of course, that was in the era of independent promotion men as well. Yeah. And you you couldn't have a hit unless you paid them. So basically what he did was he just took the independent promotion men. He was yeah. off the record. He was very close with Freddie DiCipio. Yeah. I mean, that happened with me in the States with Go West. I remember when when we released uh, the Go West record in the States. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the King of Wishful Thinking. No, no, no. That was much then. later. The, yeah. the first. Oh, like, um, we close our eyes. We close our eyes, yeah. and that that was like sixty with a bullet, thirty with a bullet. I flew into uh, Hawaii, Honolulu, mm. I think from Tokyo actually, and um, I've been on a long flight. And the first person I ran into was one of the independent promotion men, and I said, "I was thinking, Amy, we're we're, we're going to go like." Top fifteen, top ten with Go mm. West, mm. and um, I said, "You know, where did the Go West record go?" I think it was. Uh, I mean, it wasn't Freddie Decipi. I think it was Joe Isgrove, one of the other ones. He said, "Oh, it went backwards. It went down to ninety. Why? Well, you took us off the record. The the guy that was running the company in America just decided not to pay them because mm. he thought the record was already a hit. Mm. Hill Stone Dead, mm. and that's what happened to your Sade record. Yeah, that's right. Hill Stone Dead. Yeah, Walter killed it." So, Robin, uh, when did you think you had the Sade record where you wanted it? When it was when you really thought this is it? I've I've cracked it. You you don't ever finish, Chris. It's like a painting. You just decide to stop. But but I did have in my mind's eye the finished article. You know, I told you I'd, mm. I'd done my arranging. So I I did finish what I thought was the process. And uh, you mixed by hand, of course, in those days. So you couldn't recall a mix and tidy it up like you can now. Make a little change in a computer takes five minutes. If you didn't like the mix, even a small part of the vocal wasn't loud enough, you had to go back into the studio and spend a whole other day. And so record companies were more inclined then to you know, accept what you'd done. But the the thing that took me a while to realise, Sade being the example, is that, of course, I was all about the music. And I've realised over the years that you can make the best record in the world, but if the artist is not prepared to or doesn't look right or won't walk the walk and talk the talk, won't come out of their room. I think about Badly Drawn Boy, what a brilliant record that was, you know, but he was totally... Wouldn't everything the girls same thing at the time? They wouldn't talk to the media. They wouldn't mm. talk to the press. Sade really was very obsessed with getting her image right. She'd crop all the photographs. She'd only let you know three photographs come out, 
Um, but it, but it was a hit in America. Yes, but so how how did? But what I've realised is that that actually, if you've got a choice, Chris, if you and I are going to put a hundred thousand pounds into you know artist A or artist B, artist B we think makes the better record, but he won't come out of his room. Artist A is Madonna. The record's not quite as good, but you just spend fifteen minutes with her and you think she's going to be famous mm. as long as she can sing adequately, and it's. You know, I tried to make the best records I could, but purely on business terms, in a way, it's, you know, I'm, 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 not, I'm not being derogatory about, about Spice Girls or, you know, Little yeah. Mix or something. But when you're that good at marketing yourself, yeah. the record only has yeah. to be okay. Really. So is and, that why well, she- the Holy Grail is when you've got a good record, like Diamond Life is a good record, and a great self-marketer yeah. like Sade. That's- but is, is that why Sade's career didn't sustain? I mean, she could have been massive forever. Well, she she is in a funny sort of way, because she only tours about every eight or nine years. Um, she plays um, stadiums, 60,000, 70,000. I mean, in 2000, 2021, she earned more money than Adele. But it was from live touring. But yes, she retreated into herself suddenly, actually, strangely. Yeah. But she still tours, you know, major venues on the back of that. Yeah, huge. Really? Yeah, and she's bigger everywhere else in the world than she is here. Really, really. Mm. Interesting. Mm. So apart from Sade, who, who else are your major, major artists that you've worked with? I had a short run of seven consecutive top 10 records which was my sort of introduction to music and then I had a manager Clive and he wanted me to work with everyone was queuing up Aretha, Chaka Khan, uh, Anita Baker and I just said I can't do those records Clive he said oh, of course you can of course you can I said I can't that whole slick American R&B thing vintage R&B I I can't do that. So um, after four or five years, I became more interested in the business side and less interested in the music side. Mm. And actually, it was going back to France and working with a singer called Patricia Cass. And I made a record with her in 1992, 93. And that became the biggest, still is the biggest selling French language record of all time. So once again, very structured, very arranged, um, but in a way, I had that short run, Chris, and um, the business, the world of studios, always fascinated me. Always fascinated me. And you moved on then to the commercial world and became a you know co-owner of what was the Rump of Chrysalis Records with um, yeah with uh, Robert Devereux and Jeremy Lascelles and myself for a while. Um, well, and before, with Blue Raincoat you, as well. Before you, Chris. Yes, so, before so, me. With so, so Jeremy, Jeremy approached me and said, "I want to start a record company, um, but I've only ever worked for big music companies. I don't know how to start a startup. So, will you help me?" So we got that off the ground. We got the opportunity to bid for Chrysalis Records, and it. Funny enough, it wasn't Jeremy who you know had already been working for you, you know, in the past for mm-hmm. a long time. But I said, you know, really, it's not right to do this without Chris because if we're taking it independent again, um, it, it needs to, we're going to need that knowledge, that history, because no one who'd owned it since then had cared about it mm. properly. So we had those meetings with you. And in fact, it was your presence that got the winning bid for us. There's no doubt about it actually reassociating chrysalis with the chris of chrysalis was a trump card you know because all it was sort of sealed bids it wasn't about the price it was about who had the best credentials to take these hmm. these businesses over and so yeah it was very much because because you you arrived a year, you know a year or so after Jeremy and I had started yeah. Well, um, I, I, I would have, I would have been part of the, I would have wanted to have made an offer myself, but I couldn't. No, because at the time I was still under contract to BMG. Yeah. From when BMG had bought the. That's right. 
the rest of Chrysalis. That's and right. I couldn't. So the only way that I could get involved was through you. So what you're saying in a way is that you needed me and I needed you. And mm. it was a you know, it was a great relationship and oh, it worked it, out. We, we, but it, then it, 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 but, it was a great adventure. But then yeah. why did I never wanted to sell it, Robin? Why did we sell it? Well, because my own personal business mantra had been for a long time: don't don't keep businesses too long, you know, and and sell them on as as they're going up, you know, rather than plateauing and going down. And I felt that there was this appetite suddenly for you know, buying music. And, and actually, Chrysalis itself was being held back because we were still, you know, a little business. So every pound mattered. So even putting a... I mean, I remember one point, Chris, where we wanted to put out a 10 years after 10 album box set. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you don't, get, you don't get the money in for 18 months after you make. We couldn't afford, literally couldn't afford to make a 10 album box set and wait 18 months for the money. So you know, we were being held back. And so American company came in and you know, made an offer that would provide the, um, the, the funding to grow the label. And it worked very well for a couple of years. But then they went on to the American Stock Exchange, NASDAQ, and everything changed. Because suddenly they were a public company with a shareholder, uh, they had an investment panel which met every six weeks. So if you wanted to sign a band um, and they wanted sales, well, you must remember this, Chris, you know, they wanted uh, data. How, and, of course, we're talking about a band who've never put a record out. There's no data. Yeah. You've, just got, you've just got a hunch. Yeah, I know, I know so what you, it's you like push in a that tape, world, yeah. You push a photo across a desk mm, with three mm, little herberts with mm, guitars and say, we, we want to put £250,000 mm, into this. And they go, yeah, but we could buy three more catalogues for that. Yeah. So the whole appetite for risk and the speed at which they could move, this is why I've moved out, Chris. This is why I've now left that. So are you no longer involved with... I'm I'm involved in the management company as a minority shareholder. Mm -hmm. I'm involved in a publishing company, not the same one that you and I were involved in, but, you know, a little publishing company which I'm a minority shareholder in. And uh, I am involved in the Frontline Record label, although I must admit I still find Frontline Record releases they're so expensive, you know, per record. You know, £250,000 as a publisher, you can get five, six, seven, eight opportunities with a young band. That 250000 we put out two or three mm. singles, mm. the money's gone. So, mm. so, so I've got a minority interest, but... Um, I feel like my basic appetite is still to build and grow and sell. And I would just be really just an administrator there. So. Are you looking for the, you know, the next thing? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And have you found it yet? No, nope. not yet. Are you going to tell me about it when you do? Well, do you know the funny thing is, if it was you, the answer would be yes. But the American parent company said the same thing to me, you know, and I said, I'm stepping down. Yeah. The, the, the very nice woman who runs it said, um, what are you going to do? I gave the same answer I just gave you. And she said, oh, please, please think of us, you know, when you have an idea. So somebody did approach me with something and I did push it across her desk and she kind of went, we're worried about the overhead. And I went, okay, okay. Well, think about me, Robin. I will. I enjoyed being in business with you. Me too. I loved it. I never wanted it to end. I'm very sad that it did. Mm. Um, but these things do happen, and now, now we know, you know the reasoning by, well, behind it. Well, I'll tell you it. what, Chris, now that it's a publicly limited company, probably worth about three or 400 million, we'll, we'll see if we can find you know, a couple of hedge fund idiots who want to buy the whole thing. We'll spin out Chrysalis and carry on where we left off. Okay, perfect. <laughs> Let's do that. Okay, so we, we, we've come to an end. But we've come to a very good end because we've come to an end with not just talking about the past, but talking about the future and what we might do together going forward again. Robin, it, it was, it's been great talking to Lovely. you. I learned so much, I, so much that I didn't know. And thank you very much for coming on the show. 
It's been it's been marvellous. You've been listening to Right on the Nail with me and Robin Miller, Sir Robin Miller, no less. And I think between Robin and I, I think we've nailed it. Thank you for listening to Right on the Nail. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review and a rating on your podcast app. And why not share the episode with a friend or family member who you think would find it interesting? The episode was produced by Tom Platts and is published by New Thinking. And a huge thank you once more to Robin and catch you all next time on Right on the Nail. Right on the Nail.